Now, as Carl is handing out our passage for today, you will see that we are continuing our study in Romans and we'll be tackling Romans chapter 15 in its entirety. Everybody have one? Good. Uh, after Romans, we will go to Acts chapter 20 and finish Acts because the letters of Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, which is the chronological order of their composition, were written in Rome after Paul had finally gotten there. Yes. Okay, so we are in Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Uh, there's an, an unfortunate chapter break here, because technically, chapter 15, verses 1 through 13, belong to chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles open, you will notice the beginning of chapter 14 of Romans starts with the words, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him and do not quarrel over opinions. Chapter 15, verse 1, where we are today, says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So in other words, it's not a new topic. It's just an inadvertent chapter insertion. Remember, the chapters are not inspired scripture. They were not part of the original Greek text. So it is actually a continuous narrative. But... Because we have the chapter sections, it helps us, and it also helps divide up the, the length of the chapters. You'll notice um, chapter 14, if you added the 13 verses of chapter 15, it would be really long. So they just kind of made it short for preachers who like to have shorter sermons. Uh, <laughs> not really. So it says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. We who are strong. Huh. Remember last week, none of us wanted to identify as the weak ones. So we all identify with this verse. Oh, we're the strong ones. Oh. And, but Paul is writing to those in the church because there's conflict in the church. And as we saw in chapter 14, it was all related to um, the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols and what was appropriate, what, what, what isn't, and the idea that if you are one of the stronger ones and you don't have a problem with it, don't just chomp on the pulled pork burger in front of your Jewish friend just because you want to goad them a little bit. Uh, that's not loving. It's not edifying. It's not exhorting them at all. It's just being annoying. And you're creating a stumbling block because then that weaker brother or sister is now wondering, wow, if Christianity is all about that, I want nothing to do with it. So you have this, this issue that's obviously circulating in the, probably in all the churches that Paul has been at, but maybe some of the challenges in the Church of Rome have come to bear. Because if you remember, the Church of Rome, obviously established by Jewish believers, but in 52 AD, five years before this letter was written, all the Jews were kicked out of Rome, the city of Rome, by the emperor. All that was left were the Gentiles. Now that restriction has been relaxed and they're all coming back into the Church of Rome. Well, who's the leader? You know, well, I mean, what would happen if, uh, um, who was the very first pastor here at Camelback? Grant Howard. Grant Howard. So Grant Howard's passed away, but let's say he was still alive. Let's say he came back and said, I want to be senior pastor here again. And the church would kind of awkwardly say, uh, we have one. And so you imagine you've got someone from the past suddenly coming in, and now you have all these possible issues that are brought up. 
Paul is trying to teach that those who have been transformed by God, as we have in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, should demonstrate that transformation in how they treat others in the body of Christ. Let's look a little deeper into verse 1. We who are strong, and you'll notice I have organized the text in your handout by adding some breaks and lines just to kind of give a feel for the flow of the thought. I, I just I started doing this a, you know, a few sessions ago, and I, I think it's really helpful uh, for us to, to catch it. But he says, we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Well, obligation? What's an obligation? Responsibility. Hmm? Responsibility. It's a responsibility. And it's even more than that. It's yeah. something that you have to do. It is an obligation. It's an obligation. <clears throat> Commitment. There you go. And here's a word that I thought of in, in looking at this. It's a debt. Uh-huh. And remember the last chapter? Do not owe anyone anything. Do not have debts except the debt of love. The love for one another is an obligation. It is part of who you are as a believer. And so you see his wording. Now, granted, I'm adding meaning to this word, but... Is it possible he's referring to that concept of debt, the debt of love? You have the obligation, and then it's the word to bear. B-E-A-R, not the animal. But to bear, it's the Greek word bastazo, B-A-S-T-A-Z-O. Those of you who like to write those words down. Bastazo, which means to carry. There are two places in the New Testament where that word is used literally and then later figuratively. Literally, Jesus bastazoed the cross on his back. He carried, it actually reads, he bore it, he bared the cross. Oh. We have an, a slight interruption. Don't look at the person in the room you know, who's running past. It's no big deal. <laughs> it's funny. Um, the place where it's used figuratively is in Luke 14, chapter 20, uh, verse 27. Luke 14, 27, where it reads... Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Same word, bear. Now, you know, granted, I, if I were preaching on this, I would really lean into this and make it a big deal and make it part of my sermon. But we're in a teaching setting, and so I'm going to make the point, and then I'll back off from it, because I could be reading too much into this word. But when you bear something, it's not a grin and bear it. This is an obligation to carry the failings of the others in the church, in the body of Christ. You put them on your back so they may grow and be discipled and learn. This idea is not just some... He could have used any word here, but he used this word. We have a debt to carry those who are weaker or untrained or new or are bringing other ideas into the body. And that's perfectly fine. Remember I I had that poem last week and I didn't bring it with me this time, but basically if... You know, you can fellowship with me as long as you do what I do and believe what I do and dress like I do and think like I do. But if you don't, I want nothing to do with you. Is that kind of how we start acting after a while? And that's wrong. It's just absolutely wrong. 
we bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Instead, unfortunately the word instead isn't here, but I'm adding it. Instead, let each of us please his neighbor for his own good to build him up. Not to tear them down with gossip and criticism because we are superior. Wow, that's kind of a powerful statement in and of itself. You don't even need all of chapter 14 to look at this. You look at just these two verses and you see a very powerful principle of the body of Christ working together for each other's betterment. Ray Stedman says that, uh, he, he wrote, someone has well said that Christians can be compared to porcupines on a cold winter night. They need to huddle together in order to warm each other, but as soon as they get close, their prickly spines dig into each other and they have to pull apart. So all night long, it's a dance of huddling and pulling, huddling and pulling. As many churches, I'm afraid, fit the description very aptly. This is the essential problem that Paul faces in the application of the mighty doctrine we have had in Romans thus far. The practical matter of getting along with each other. The first 13 verses of chapter 15 deal with two major causes of division among Christians. Those divisions arise from a different difference of conviction or point of view and divisions that arise from different background. And isn't that interesting just in and of itself of what Ray Stedman analyzed? It's a different point of view or a different conviction and a different background that you bring to the conversation. One of the uniquenesses about Camelback Bible Church is that it's not a denomination per se. It's an independent church, independent Bible church. So I'm going to take a risk here, if you're willing to say, if you grew up in a church, what denomination did you grow up in? Southern Baptist. Okay. Southern Baptist. Disciple of Christ. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Baptist? Hmm? Pardon? Oh, I, I put said a disciple of Christ, this was a mainline denomination. He put a cross in. He put I a put a cross. Yeah. Yes, I became Christian outside of my church. Yes. <laughs> it, it's an inside joke between us. Um, anybody else? Catholic. 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 Okay. So you see, even in this room, we have different backgrounds or traditions that informed the theology, our understanding, our methods of interpreting scripture, that we have predisposed opinions when we come to any theological debate. When I went to um, Grand Canyon, when it was a college, before it's a university, now it's a university, but Grand Canyon, Dr. Martin, he said that the challenge of teaching theology in the Bible department at Grand Canyon, it was the only class in the entire college where everybody knew all the answers before they started the class. So he would start teaching and he would have people arguing with him. And after a while he's going, put my answer on the test. You can have whatever opinion you want. I don't care. I'm right because I'm the teacher, put my answer on the test. But it was fascinating to hear all of this because they had predisposed opinions. So Paul, think about Paul and who he's working with. He's working with Jews who have a very established ritual and understanding of how to worship God. Then you have the Gentiles who have a pagan background they're reacting against the pagan background. And then you have those who, are, who feel the, the liberty when it comes to food. And you have others who are going, we can't do that. 
and they're having these battles at the potluck. <laughs> Sounds kind of silly, but remember I talked about a number of different church splits last week? I came across another one. Two smaller congregations in a, in a, in a, in a city decided, you know, it would be a great idea if we pooled our resources and merged as a church. This is just a great idea. We can really move together. But the merger failed to occur because of how you say the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses. And the two churches said it differently and they could not come to a compromise because there's not a third word you can use. Sins. Like sin. Sins, well, yeah. Anyway. Um, and they, the merger did not happen because of that issue. And you want to go... You can imagine Paul walking into that group and going, Dude, what's going on? This is insane. Let each please his neighbor for his good to build them up, not to tear them back down. Why? Verse 3, For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. The abusive words of those who abused you fell on me. Christ was other-centered, not self-centered. But then you'll notice I get a little bit of a, a side note in the text because verse 4 to me is a separate idea entirely. It's related, but I pulled it out, I centered it on your page, and put a little tag next to it. Look at this verse just in and of itself. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. What was written in former days? The Old Testament. Yeah, the whole Old Testament he's talking about. The Bible. The New Testament hasn't been written yet. Kind of, sort of. He's in the midst of writing it right now. So he's writing, and he has just quoted the Psalms. And it's almost like he steps aside and says, by the way, the reason why I quoted this is because everything that's in the Old Testament, you need to know it's put there for a reason. In fact, I even wrote in my, my margin, remember when we were going through our chronological study of the Old Testament and how often we would look at a passage and go, what in the world is going on? And we all then would learn to chant together, it's here for a reason. Our job is to figure out why it's here. And over and over again, some of the odd, strange, seemingly... Um, uh, unusual passages made perfect sense once you really dug into it and realized its historical context, what God was trying to say to them and then to us at the same time. So it's written, all of it, in other words, whatever was written, all the Old Testament, all the New Testament, we can believe now, is from God and it's for us because it was written for our, didn't say your, written for our instruction. You think of, and I'm not, I can never quote it properly, so I'm going to read it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. He wrote that verse approximately five or six years after he wrote this one. It's for our instruction. That through endurance, or King James has patience, or the NASB has perseverance, that idea of endurance in life 
how many times the answers to life's challenges are actually found in Scripture if we just read it. So many people have not even read any part of Scripture, much less have tried to absorb all of it. And I even wrote here, I said, this is a lifelong pursuit. Why? Because you will forget what you read. I do. You know? You know, Lisa and I have this kind of joke between us that I can read an Agatha Christie mystery more than once <laughs> because I forgot who did it. Boring. <laughs> She's going, how? How do you not know? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like, oh, wow, I'm so surprised. And then you're kind of like a fish going around the fishbowl. Ooh, a castle. <laughs> oh, look at that castle. Yeah, that's, that's me. Yeah, okay. Yeah, generally I don't. Every time. Yeah, an old uh, an old Bible teacher that uh, I ran into once. He suggested if you write in your Bible, write in pencil, because the next time you come to it, it will either have smudged or worn off. And it'll be all brand new, but you realize you've been here before. But you can't quite read what's there. That's kind of a cool thing. Or, as he says, once you've filled one Bible, get a new one, fill it up again with new notes, and then compare. It's kind of fun that way. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. And it's that idea of not waiting for a bad day to end but anticipating that there will be a dawn tomorrow. We often focus on the immediate, immediate and the, I just need some relief. Instead of looking at tomorrow, that's the day the Lord has made. Yeah, He made this one too, but it's been a really bad day. But I've survived. Scripture gives us that hope. We're always asking, what next, Lord? What now? We already took care of today. What now? Then that word hope. Kind of a fun little thing that came across. I'm always glad when Tom's here because we can correct my French since I don't know French. But the word for hope in Latin is spes. In French, it is the word espoir. Say it louder because I can't pronounce it. You want the noun or the verb? I don't know. The noun. Noun. Espoir. E S P O I R. Espoir. Okay. And then in Spanish, Esperanza. Now, you take the negative, the without hope, and you just add the D-E, and we get our word despair. Two letters changes hope into despair. Same thing happens in French, but it's sans, right? No, no. Désespoir means despair. Really? I did not know that. Because I looked it up, and of course I was probably Googling the wrong thing, typically, because I had the sans. But that's two words. And then in Spanish, you add sin or no hope. The Bible gives us hope and removes the DE. So we are typically one tiny little step away from despair. 
And yet the Bible gives us that hope. And constant goodness. Do a study of the word hope in your Bible. Just over and over and over and over again. But when it comes to the Old Testament, and for those of you who study the Old Testament, look at it or read it, John Calvin is with you. John Calvin wrote, We find here, speaking of this verse in Romans, a most striking condemnation of those fanatics who vaunt that the Old Testament should be abolished and that it belongs not in any degree to Christians. For with what front can they turn away Christians from those things which, as Paul testified, have been appointed by God for their salvation? The same thing is also true of the writings of the apostles, for since the Spirit of Christ is everywhere like itself, there is no doubt that he has adapted his teachings by the apostles as formerly by the prophets to the edification of his people. And again, I bring this up because of the famous megachurch pastor in Atlanta who basically said we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament because it's too hard to understand. And it's irrelevant. And I have to stand here and go, no. If you don't understand the Old Testament, well, you certainly then can't understand what Paul's talking about. Because Paul's, in this chapter, he quotes the Old Testament six times. You have no concept of what he's talking about. So to have Paul almost take this sidestep and say, by the way, the reason why I just quoted from the Psalms and why I quote from it all the time is that everything was written, was written for our benefit. Pretty cool stuff. Verse 5. May the, the God of endurance and encouragement, same two words that you just saw, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Goodness. One accord is harmony. Wonderful musical term. We, we get the metaphor. It's a beautiful picture. Philip Brooks was a famous pastor in the uh, mid-1800s. Great preacher. And he was at a local livery stable asking for the best horse that the man had. Brooks explained, he says, I'm taking a good friend for a ride and I want the very best for the occasion. The livery man hitched up a horse to a buggy and said, this animal is about as perfect as a horse can be. It's kind, it's gentle, intelligent, well-trained, obedient, willing, responds instantly to your every command, never kicks, balks, or bites, and lives only to please its driver. And Philip Brooks quietly leaned over to the owner and said, you suppose we can get that horse to join my church? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Love your neighbor I have to take a deep breath for that one. <laughs> yes, 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 my punny, punny wife. Okay. That's actually really good. <laughs> Kudos for that one. We did not plan that, by the way. But just think about it. Are you kind, gentle, intelligent, obedient, willing? You never kick, balk, or bite. <laughs> Something goes wrong in the church. Something goes that you don't like it. Usually it's under the word change. And I'm guilty of this, just like we all are. How are we responding to that? Is it in love and in unity? Or is it because we want to be in charge and do it the way we want it to be done? Well, granted, there are times where the criticism is worthy, but that's the point of the body of Christ, is to, number one, live in such harmony that together in one voice you glorify God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for those of you who are in the first service, look at verse 7. 
What was the one he used right before the greeting time this morning? It was verse 7 of chapter 15, because he stood up there and he goes, as it says in Romans 15, 17, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And he says, how has Christ welcomed you? And I'm sitting there going, doggone it, he took away my point in my class. Isn't that amazing? We did not collude, there's nothing. But here he's talking about the welcoming of everyone in the body of Christ, as Christ welcomed you. Wow. And then, of course, the entire sermon, we could have just simply taken those words, plopped it on top of these 13 verses, and included chapter 14, and it would be a repeat in general. Doesn't it kind of tell you something that Paul had to write this to the Corinthians? That he had to write this to the Romans? That he had to write this to the Ephesians? Over and over and over again. Because humans do not get along with each other unless they're reminded that there is a, something greater than your own personal comfort and opinions. And that is to glorify Christ and glorify God the Father. So it carries on, verse 8. And this is a fairly long section. Uh, it's fairly easy to boil it down because you have verse 8 is talking about the work of Christ and then verses 9 through 12 are quotes from the Old Testament. So you have Christ as the example. His work was for all, as Jesus was a Jew, circumcised according to the covenant of Abraham, fulfilled the requirements of the covenant with Israel, and fulfilled the covenant of David by claiming the throne as a descendant of David. That's the simplistic rewrite of Chuck Swindoll's sermon on this passage. But then... In the subsequent verses, Paul quotes four Old Testament passages that show that the Gentiles were part of God's redemptive plan from the beginning. Imagine the Jews in the room. Kind of going, oh, wow, I, I kind of missed that one. Or I forgot. Or I read it once and I didn't hear that part. Paul strings them all together, and he's trying to make a point. The Gentiles are a part of this body, as are the Jews. There is no Jew, there is no Greek in Christ. And then he has this benediction, if you want to call it that, verse 13. May the God of hope, there's that word hope again, fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Jerry Bridges has a great quote in one of his books. One of the most important things is the hope of the ho that the Holy Spirit provides to believers. Every believer needs this divine encouragement because the opposition is relentless. And there are plenty of disappointments along the way. Sometimes we think we turned the corner on a particular sin, only to find a few days later that all we've done is gone around the block. And we're dealing with it again. What an incredible picture. I've turned the corner. Well, you turn the corner three times and you're back where you started. <laughs> But there is hope in our battle with sin and it lies in placing our dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit, the ever-present helper. And that little benediction addresses that. Now, technically, in the scheme of things in Romans, this is the last section of, his, of the teaching from chapter 1 through chapter 15, verse 13, the practical, theological teaching of Romans is now done. Everything from this point forward 
is our personal matters, future plans, and greetings. But it's a lot of them. And yet there's some wonderful little uh, nuggets in this, these next sections. We're going to finish 14 through 33 now because um, I found some fun stuff for us, which you can do in a classroom setting, not so much in a Sunday morning sermon. But if you ever wonder, this is why I think chapter 15 should have started here. Because 15 and 16 kind of make a unit. But what Paul does in verses 14 and following to through about the end of verse 18, maybe 19, he is trying to establish why he has written this letter. Now, modern people, us, if we're going to write a missive like this, we're going to start with my reasons why I'm writing you. You know? You know I, I'm writing this to you, Tom, because y you've lost it. And I need to just, i got to say some hard things. So, you know, gird your loins, and then here we go. That's how we do it. No, he starts with, here's the stuff. And then he gets to the end and goes, now I'm writing this because. Because notice what he starts with. He grabs his audience without the other stuff. Hmm? He grabs his audience because if he started this way, they might not read the letter. Uh, <laughs> considering how few letters probably went around, I would say they would have read it. It's just a different methodology in communication than what we do it in our world. So that's why it seems a little out of place, but it's not out of place. I'm satisfied with you guys. You're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and able to instruct each other. And you kind of go, wait, you just spent four, 15 chapters telling us we screwed up, and we don't know anything. No, that isn't what he did. It feels like it. Because Paul is, writes authoritatively, and sometimes stridently, and on occasion, pointedly. But he doesn't say in verse 14, man, it, you, you, your, your church is in trouble. Because he does that in other letters. But here, you guys got things together, but verse 15, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There's a reason for my madness, for this methodology, for this theological exposition. I actually wrote on my margin, I said, Paul writes with exhortation, not condemnation. He's, and someone who's exhorting you, they're going to sound strident. They're going to say, you must, you will, you have to. Rather than saying, you blew it, you're an idiot, you're a jerk face, you know, get your act together. One way of looking at it, if you look at 14 and 15 together, he says to them, I admire your goodness, your knowledge, and your ability to instruct one another, but you can do better. Which is why I wrote this letter. We can all do better. All of us. That's why we study Romans. Probably for some of us, you've studied it multiple times and read it, and each time you read it, it becomes a little more clear. You're hearing in a different way, and you're reminded of these thoughts. But what's interesting to me in this passage is verse 16. He says, I'm doing this to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. 
he doesn't say to be a doulos of Christ Jesus, a servant. He uses the word liturgus, where we get our word liturgy, to be a minister, a pastor, a teacher. In the priestly service, okay, question, was Paul a priest? Yes? No? He was the tribe of Benjamin, so he was not a priest. He couldn't have been. At least not according to the Jewish arrangement and the office of priest, and yet he's claiming priestly service here because of what he's doing. Not because it's an office, but it is a service. And it, it really kind of throws you, if you're looking at this carefully, looking at the word minister and the word priestly, you're kind of going, wait. Plus, if you're Protestant, the word priest has some connotations. Mm -hmm. And if you have been formerly Catholic, it has enormous consequences because you think of the guy with the collar and, you know, all the hullabaloo that goes along with that, and you kind of go, I want nothing to do with the priest. It's also interesting, if you think of Hollywood, they never have pastors, they always have priests. And they always put a collar on them. So there was a, a, a novel series, that was a best-selling novel series, At Home at Mitford by Jan Karen. There's a priest in there, Father Tim. He's not Catholic. He's Episcopal. So you could get away with it in the Protestant market, they, that was acceptable. But he's Father Tim, whereas a Catholic would read that and go, oh, Father Tim, sure, he's Catholic. Not realizing, wait, this is, this is different. Isn't it funny how we add labels to things and then we add meaning to the labels without looking behind them? So we look at Paul calling himself a priest, but what is he doing? What does a priest do? A priest ministers to the people and offers a sacrifice to God, or the offering, right? That's what they did in the temple. What does he call his offering in this verse? The Gentiles. The Gentiles who have come to Christ under his ministry. That is his offering. He sees himself as this minister, this evangelist, this priest to Gentiles offering their lives of change to God. And it's about the only place in the New Testament where you see this understanding of what Paul is doing philosophically, theologically, redemptively. He saw himself in such a vital role and he's trying to express that to these Romans. Isn't that neat? kind of, it's not something you normally think about at Paul. You just think of this, you know, guy who shouts a lot. Uh, but no, he truly, truly felt that his work was redemptive in the lives of these people. Sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, verse 17, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. He's not saying, I am proud because I do this work. No, I am proud of the work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. He's not taking credit for it, so don't misread it. Read the whole passage. And by word and deed and by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Notice one thing. In fact, you can even circle it if you'd like. Verse 13, verse 16, and verse 19. Circle the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God. See how it's rendered? You've got the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 13. The um, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, verse 16. The power of the Spirit of God, verse 19. You have the Holy Spirit and power very 
much on display, almost more so than in any other spot so far in this writing. He's talking how the Spirit is thoroughly invested or involved in all of this and brings the power to this. So, this is where the fun, fun part gets, at least for me, with my little research, rabbit trails, which you know I am famous for. Verse 19, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of God. Turn your page in your handout to page 3. Who can find Illyricum? Raise your hand. Wow, that was quick. You guys actually know your geography or you're lucky? We looked. You looked ahead of time. <laughs> find Illyricum on your map. If you know where Albania is or uh, Yugoslavia, Serbia, Kosovo, Croatia. Croatia. That's your Lyricum. Marie was there last week. Hmm? Marie was there last Marie week. Marie was there last for week. A conference. Okay. <laughs> now, think about the travels of Paul. Nowhere else in the New Testament is Illyricum mentioned. Anywhere. What? He just declared that he has preached from Jerusalem to Illyricum. And we're going, uh, when? It's not on my map in the back of my Bible. In fact, I'll bet if you have a map in the back of your Bible on the journeys of Paul, it will only show you the furthermost edge of Macedonia on the north west edge of Macedonia because all of his travels were on the eastern side of Macedonia and Achaia around Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, and Corinth. Illyricum's on the other side of the country. Isn't that interesting? So, I started digging around, as I am wont to do, Illyricum became a Roman province under Augustus in 27 BC. 37 years later, they dissolved it. And they cut it in half. The northern part was called Pannonia, and the southern half was called Dalmatia. That's where they raise fire dogs. <laughs> fire department dogs, no. <laughs> but it's called Dalmatia. So now, you get to turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 10 and 11. Okay. 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. It reads... For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus, where? Dalmatia. To Dalmatia. Illyricum. Dalmatia is the modern word, the contemporary word, but the larger area probably was still known as Illyricum which is why Paul mentioned it in his passage in Romans. And then it says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you, for he's useful for me in ministry. This suggests that Paul spent time there. And there are certain gaps in the, his travels where you might have three or four months where it says he stayed in an area or we, when we, we try to find the timestamps in our chronology and we go, well, he was here eh, around four to six months and then he moved here and then he moved down there, but we don't exactly, well, who says he didn't get on a carriage on a, a very compliant horse <laughs> and go up to Illyricum. He just never brought it up. He may have established churches that might still be there today, 
for all we know. Isn't that fascinating? There is also the, um, the Ignatian Way. That's a very famous Roman road. So if you take where Rome is, you go across the sea and pick up almost directly <coughs> east of Rome on your map. Let's see, I need to draw it this way if you're looking at your map. And you pick it up, you're in Illyricum. That road ran directly across the northern edge of Macedonia all the way to Philippi. It's a major, major road. It was the connection to Rome. If you wanted to get from Philippi to Rome, you got on the, the Ignatian Way, you know, basically it's I-17, you know, 80 miles an hour, and you're there in a few hours, and you jump on your boat, and you're, in, you're on the edge of Italy. So there's nothing to say that he didn't go there. Obviously, Paul said he went there. We just don't know when, or how, or what was said. I just find that absolutely fascinating. And it continues. Verse 20. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone's foundation. Wait, what? He spent long time in some of these cities. But most of the time, it was where he had established that church in that city. His goal was to spread the gospel. And I found one fascinating little map uh, that someone had created of Paul's journeys. And it kind of created a, a seismic, uh, like circles around a city, like someone had pounded something and you see the spread. And you take that initial hit from where we know Paul was, and you look around the regions, and they start to interlock with each other and realize that Paul's efforts spread the gospel considerably because he would establish the church, boom, and then it would spread. And he'd go to another place, boom, and it would spread. That was his calling. What an unusual thing. And it says he's preaching the gospel. And we know the gospel is good news. And I saw this the first time I've ever seen this. You probably all of you know this already. So I apologize for my ignorance. But we know the gospel is the good news, right? N E W S. North, East, West, and South. The gospel goes to all four corners of the earth. Isn't that amazing? Use that in your next thing. Just blow everybody away. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was fascinating because I'd never thought of that before. That news actually is a global word. Anyway, in English, anyway, it is. Um, the verse from Isaiah that's quoted those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand, is an evangelism mission statement. You could call this an Old Testament Great Commission if you wanted to. I may be overstating it a little bit. But think about it. Those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. Because I am going to go spread the word to wherever it has not been preached before. This is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you, because I had other work to do. And now, since I no longer have any room for work in those regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you again as I pass through going to Spain. And to be helped in my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company. And then he says, at present, I'm going down to Jerusalem to bring an offering, and I have you know, have had people in Macedonia and Achaia make contributions. They were pleased to do it. And verse 28, when therefore I have completed and I have delivered it to them, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Okay. So Lisa knows that I, I like to ask these questions. So he says he's going to Spain. You have your map. You see where Spain is. We know where Spain is. 
Why didn't he say gall? Any idea? I mean, that's France after all. But he says Spain. Well, okay, there's a lot of questions there. I actually found an academic article. I read the whole thing. Huh. Wow, those things are really dry. Anyway, um, but he was, trying to, he was trying to answer that question. And then I said, well, why not Britain? That's even farther. I mean, Spain was seen as the edge of the world. Mm -hmm. It's as far west as you could go. And if you're a flat earther, you go to where that water stops and you fall off. Because you have to go the other direction to get to India. And of course, that's where the world ended, as far as they knew, was India. They didn't know China was there yet. Um, but Britain's just up the road. So... Lisa and I were talking about this, and we had to kind of dig, a, dig up. When did Rome get in Britain? Well, apparently Julius Caesar went there first. And it didn't go well. So they pulled back. They left a couple garrisons, and it was expensive to do that. Then they came back a hundred times stronger and made a push. Didn't go well. And so pretty much the Roman Empire had kind of backed away from Britina or Londinium as you see it on your map. Um, it wasn't until 43 AD under Emperor Claudius that Rome invaded Britain or Britin Brit Brit Brittany the third time. It took 45 years to subdue the island. Just think about that for a second. We complain about being in Afghanistan. Imagine you've got a garrison for 45 years and you still can't squash these people. And who was the one who had to build a wall up in the northern end? Hadrian's Wall. Because the Scots were so difficult and they never conquered Scotland they never did they never were able to subjugate them they never got into Ireland but they got through to Wales they got the, the lower half of the island got it pretty much established but it took them 45 years what never had dawned on me is that that was happening while Paul was alive so I had to ask myself did he have a news feed on his phone to hear about the battles in Brittany? Or was it just kind of the typical empire news that made its way around and yeah, they're this far flung? I have a feeling that Paul, that Brittany wasn't on his radar. But Spain would have been. Spain had been conquered by the Romans many centuries earlier, but thoroughly subjugated by Augustus Caesar. And for 400 years, Spain was an ally of Rome and never rebelled. It's a good horse. Hmm? Good horse. They were very good little citizens. And they adopted all the Roman culture. They adopted everything. It, and apparently, I've not been there, you've been there, there are still an awful lot of vestiges of ancient Rome everywhere throughout Spain. Is that right? Yeah. Just whole regions of it. At this time in Paul's life, there was Lucan, an epic poet, was very well known across the empire. Martial, M-A-R-T-I-A-L, who was the master of the epigram. And Quintilian, a Greek teacher of oratory, was actually known throughout the empire. If you wanted to learn oration, you would go to him in Spain. There was also a well-known philosopher, a Stoic philosopher, by the name of Seneca. Mm -hmm. Contemporary of Paul. Seneca was a well-known teacher of the Stoic philosophy and was the guardian and mentor, teacher of Nero before Nero was emperor. He taught him from a small, or a teenage boy, 
up until the time he took became emperor. And Seneca, you know, Lisa and I, we'd always thought he was Italian. No, he was Spanish. He was a Spaniard. So it was known as a hub of culture, Roman culture. The main language in Spain was Latin, which meant if Paul was going to go to Spain, he couldn't be teaching in Koine Greek. Because pretty much Koine Greek stopped in Greece, and everything west was Latin. I think that's fascinating. One, act, one man actually suggested that he learned Latin from his Roman guards when he was in prison. Yeah, I, I have a feeling he already knew it. I'd say he was a pretty smart guy. Um, and his, his, his word, his vocabulary would be different than the Roman guards. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Slightly. Um, in the days of Pliny the Elder, the historian, there were over 400 cities in Spain. And many of them were substantial, and many of them had synagogues. So there was a Jewish presence in Spain. And one, another scholar made the suggestion that in 52 AD, when Claudius kicked all the Jews out of Rome, well, we know some of them went east because that's where, um, my mind just went blank. Aquila and Priscilla. Yeah, Aquila and Priscilla went. They went east and that's where they met up with Paul. Who says some of them didn't go west into Spain? It would have had the vibrant culture and the support system. Some of them went south into Africa. Who says that they couldn't? And if you think about the geography, and that map that I handed to you is really interesting. If you think of if Paul were to make a circuit, he could go west to Spain, hop across the Mediterranean, come back across the top of Africa and hit Carthage and Alexandria and all these other places and make his way back to Jerusalem. He could have made an entire circuit out of it. thing is, we don't know if he ever did. <laughs> there's no indication. Um, travel from Rome to Spain was relatively easy. There are uh, indications of letters that were written in Spain that arrived in Rome seven days later. And that's better than UPS. I mean, if you're in the wrong zone, you can wait forever for your package. But, and of course, you, you know, the U.S. Postal Service. Don't, don't get me started. Yeah. <laughs> Some, you know, they had a, they had a tough year uh, a couple of years back. Uh, for those of you who had tried to send letters across town to pay bills and it couldn't make it across town. Anyway. However, there is the big question, did Paul ever get to Spain? Well, we don't know for certain, but in 95 AD, Clement of Rome, writing 1 Clement, which was a letter to the Corinthians, he wrote and talked about Paul going to Rome. I'm sorry, to Spain. It's like, oh, well, that was only 30 years after Paul had died. So there would have been still people alive who would have raised their hand and went, wait, that didn't happen. No, it was never countered. And then about 100 years later, there's a famous uh, archaeological fragment called the Meritorian Fragment, also suggests that he went to Spain for a period of time. <clears throat> there's an argument that can be made that he did it after his first imprisonment in Rome when he was released because he was already halfway there and then got on the boat and went around and then came back. That's the theory. I have an article, an entire article called The Fourth Missionary Journey of Paul, who tries to reconstruct what it would have looked like. Um, uh, but I didn't feel like you'd want to be here for another hour Why go through all of those details. Um, That's interesting. But yeah, isn't that interesting how we have this kind of this hidden mystery of Paul's journeys in his life. But this verse shows his passion for his ministry and his goals for ministry. And he puts them in writing and states it to these people. He's saying to them, I'm going to come to Rome, but I'm not going to set up shop and mess with it. 
I'm going to come through and visit on my way. So don't be afraid that I'm coming to take over. That's the feel that I get from this. Again, I may be misinterpreting it a little bit. But there is an assurance that when he's coming, please welcome me. I'd be happy to be there. I'm gonna, I, I may even stay a few months. But I'm not going to establish a second Baptist church. Because you already have the first Baptist church of Rome, and we don't need a second one. Um, there are, it's again just another trivia thing that I remember that the city of Rome around this time had 12 synagogues. It was that large. So there were 12, potentially 12 established churches because they started in the synagogue and then they would go to the home churches outside of that. So it's possible they were everywhere in Rome, which is kind of cool. And then verse 30, I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ, by the love of the Spirit, Strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered, be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. That's a whole other story. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. He's talking about the offering that he's collected. So that by God's will I may come to you, again, I'm coming to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. And you think that's the end of the letter. Nope. Next week is the rest of the letter. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together for this wonderful chance to dig into an obscure portion of the New Testament that is rarely looked at in any depth. Um, and yet there's so much here, just like we find every time when we open your word. Bless us as we go about our day and the rest of our week. In Jesus' name, amen.